Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am. And today we're going to be talking about a battle that is occurring within the field of conservation. And it's no fault of your own if you haven't heard of it or you haven't seen the scars or the war scars of this battle, but it's something that's happening within the academia of, um, of conservation. Conservation is a field of research and practice that works to protect the environment and species and ecosystems. And despite our efforts for um, many decades and over a century, conservation has, we're still witnessing the degradation of our planet uh, and our environmental um, ecosystems and the loss of habitat and biodiversity across the world. You may have seen some recent reports on um, the extinction crisis that we are currently living within, and we've spoken uh, many times on the show about the issues of global warming and the climate emergency. Within the conservation field, um, and particularly in Australia, a common scapegoat, quite literally, is animals. Is the, We see degradation to the habitat or to the environment, to biodiversity, and we want to fix it. We want to figure out what's happening. So we go out and we might cull, in quotes, we <laughs> might cull uh, or kill um, other, other species that might be overpopulated or perhaps feral pest invasive species. And this is quite a common... Um, method or strategy within conservation within Australia to improve or gain, get environmental benefits, or that's what we that's what we're told. Um, and this this is not restricted to just non-native species like foxes, cats, rabbits, horses, but also um, native species. We see um, a call for people killing kangaroos, and we've had a recent show on that issue. Um, on freedom of species. If you want to listen to that, go back into our back catalogue a couple of weeks. Um, but also uh, other native species that have moved to places where they might displace threatened individuals or threatened species. And there's this really um, interesting discussion happening within the conservation field at the moment where a new movement 
um, within conservation called compassionate conservation is trying to respond to the ethical issues with going and killing a large number of individuals. So going and killing, I think we Australia had a target of killing 2 million cats. And w- will that have any benefit to the Australian ecosystem and wildlife and biodiversity? There's plenty of people that would say not necessarily. And it, there are fundamental ethical issues with going and killing 2 million individuals. And conservation um, is grappling with this the ethics of individuals versus the ethics of collectives like species and ecosystems. And today we are going to be joined with um, by Dr. Ariane Wallach, who is a researcher in compassionate conservation at the University of Technology, Sydney, and is a leading um, researcher in this field in Australia and actually around the world. Uh, Ariane investigates the role of large predators on biodiversity and the functioning of novel ecosystems. For example, how the presence of dingoes moderates the health of the environment and the presence of other animals such as non-native predators like foxes and cats. And Ariane's research has challenged established paradigms on the cause and treatment of biodiversity decline in Australia by showing that protecting dingoes enables species to thrive in modern, modern ecosystems and that lethal control of introduced species is both unnecessary and counterproductive. And this is actually an area that I am particularly interested in. Uh, my own personal research is starting to look into this space and I'm really excited to have Arian on the show. Um, but before we get to that, we're going to have a, a song so that, I, so that we can actually call Arian up. Mm-hmm. So we'll see you on the other side of... Killing the Planet by The Vines.
This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. And you're listening to Freedom of Species, 8.55 a.m., and podcasting everywhere you can get good co- good podcasts. Um Today we are joined by Arian Wallach. Arian, are you there? Oh, now are we there, Arian? I'm still here. Ah, that's great. Sorry, I just <laughs> hadn't turned you on. There we go. Um, thank you very much for for joining us today. Um, just wanted to ask if you could start um, maybe by telling us a little bit about compassionate conservation and what you do in that space. Um, yeah, sure. Um, compassionate conservation um, is essentially a field that asks some um, fundamental questions about what it is that we aim to do and what it is um, appropriate to do when we do the work of conservation. Um, Many people would be um, perhaps surprised to know that there's a lot of um, uh, harm and death being done to wildlife as part of normal conservation activities. This can include um, poison baiting, um, it can include um, translocating individuals, it can include captive breeding, um, all kinds of activities um, in where the aim is to um, save species from extinction, but the individual wildlife animals being used in the program can be harmed in that process. So compassionate conservation asks, essentially, is there a better way forward. Yeah, and I feel feel like that gets right to the um the crux of of this issue that we see um between sort of ca- compassionate conservation and more mainstream forms of a con- con- conservation which are um sort of coming from two different fundamental positions I suppose um where one considers the individual and the other doesn't I suppose um doesn't doesn't necessarily consider the individual um in the first first instance. They right, first to, think to of, a point. So traditional yeah. conservation will follow um, what, what is generally accepted as animal, under animal welfare policies. Um, and and um, whereas compassionate conservation, while it does share traditional conservation's goal to enhance the protection of Earth, the Earth's diverse um, species and, and ecosystems, it also takes a much stronger position on um, on on how to treat individuals in 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 the process. Yeah, and uh, Nick Pendergrass here, Ariane, thanks for joining us and thanks for your talk at the workshop. I really enjoyed it. And I do think that term compassionate conservation, uh, yeah, I think us academics are always accused of sort of inventing terms to further our careers and that kind of thing. But I think that's a really useful term to actually um, deal with some of the critiques we've had of conservation on this show, for example, and obviously elsewhere as well. Um, one thing that came up, um, you and Richie spoke about um, some of these issues around the idea of compassion 
passion within conservation um, and argued that traditional conservation or mainstream conservation or whatever you want to call it does value individuals and sort of said this was a bit of a false dichotomy that's being raised. Um, and I did, I guess, in his talk, see some um, concern for animals. So, for example, he was talking about advocating killing horses humanely with aerial shooting to avoid the stress of being caught um, and harm to native species as well because of that. Um, and so I guess there is some concern for animals, but that, that to me seemed a big distinction in that there's a concern for animals in traditional conservation, um, but within, I guess, that animal welfare framework of killing isn't a problem as long as it's done humanely, however that's defined, whereas compassionate conservation seems to not just object to the suffering of animals, but also the killing of animals. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, I, I, I think um, what what um, you're describing from uh, um, from Dr. Ritchie's talk um, it, it does express quite well, I think, um, uh, how conservation biologists, particularly in Australia, um, consider um, consider the work of conservation and consider um, uh, and, and and consider the extent to which there is already concern um, for the well-being and welfare um, of wild animals as sufficient. Um, uh, I, I think there are two issues, though. One is that, um, he, that humans would never consider, um, or we would never consider it appropriate to treat humans in the way conservationists are arguing that it is appropriate to treat non-human wild animals. Um, and we wouldn't consider that humane or appropriate or just. Uh, categorically, we wouldn't. Mm. Um, and so, and the and the, saying that, um, uh, you know, making that distinction between traditional conservation versus compassionate conservation does not imply that that those that are conservation biologists are not compassionate human beings. Um, uh, it, it's uh, it's just pointing out that for one, the word the word compassion refers specifically to individuals because, I mean, you cannot actually have compassion for a species because species um, is not an entity that has experience, right? It is the individuals within the species that is the holder of experience, of sentience, that is of awareness, um, of capacity to suffer. Um, and so I, I, I think that while it is true that that conservation biologists are, are usually start out as uh, to share certain um, traits of particular care for wildlife, but then it can be funneled and taught through a system in, what, in, in which um, wildlife, wild animals can be quite regularly objectified, treated in a way where their own per personal experiences um, are shunted to the side. Um, in order to um, uh, achieve some sort of greater good, which is whatever it is, the, the conservation project. And how do, so how do you respond to that, um, that, that position that it's okay to kill certain individuals? I suppose it's it maybe utilitarian, like if we kill these, these individuals, we've got a greater benefit of the, um, the, the species or the individuals that they're going to kill. So, for instance, if we kill these foxes, they won't kill as many native species or native individuals, sorry. And they, they tried it or they, they suggested that um, compassionate conservation is less compassionate than it, it suggests because it doesn't take um, into account that 
the flow-on effect of um, the individuals that we, quote, let live. Um, what, what's your response to that sort of criticism? Um, well, I, I think that there's some faulty logic in, in that argument because um, to say that you're, being, that, that you're being compassionate to an animal by killing their predator would then essentially mean that conservation biologists should oppose all predation in the world. Um, and, and they're not making that claim. They're making mm. the claim that there are certain kinds of predators in certain kinds of situations which are essentially unnatural, and therefore their predation is something that we should protect their prey from. So generally, conservation biologists are not going to argue, you know, go into Africa, kill the lions so that they don't harm zebras mm. or impala, right? Yeah. Um, but they are arguing... Um, kill foxes in Australia in order to protect, um, let's say, um, uh, uh, bush rats or, um, or, or bilbies. Um, from, from the individual perspective um, uh, of, of an animal that is being predated on, which pretty much most animals eventually are, they don't know or care whether their predator is native or not. That, that doesn't affect their, um, their individual welfare. A zebra doesn't, you know, isn't sitting around going, oh, I'm being killed by my native predator, therefore I feel all right. Um, so, so compassionate conservation does emerge fundamentally, like conservation does, from, um, an, uh, from the field of ecology, which understands and accepts that the world, that is life, um, uh, in, incurs pain, death, and suffering. That is a fundamental um, r- sort of rule of life. The reason why, though, compassion is such an important thing is because we can recognize that. Mm. Um, we, we share, in, as, as just one more living creature on this planet, we share in the death, pain, suffering, disease that everyone else does. And so we know that when we poison and shoot and spread disease um, into populations, we know what, that what we're doing to them is causing them um, uh, suffering. I would like to, though, also point to some other issues that compassionate conservation does more than say, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not, not harm, but rather it completely changes the kinds of fundamental questions that we ask, such as, why do we say that foxes don't belong in Australia? Why don't we celebrate um, the wild camels um, of of Australia and the wild donkeys of Australia? Um, Shouldn't we rethink what it is that we value and how we value the, the living world? And you've already touched on this a little bit, but um, yeah, you raise in your talk that conservation promotes this idea of nativism, which yeah, I guess values this idea of of native animals. So yeah, I just wonder if you talked a bit more to that about this idea of I guess all animals being considered important rather than just those who are you know in a country at a certain period of time, depending on how far we go back, I guess. So yeah. Um, uh it's important, I think, for, for listeners to understand that, that conservation is a cultural project, and it differs in different countries. Um, and so there is no one clear, fixed sort of vision of what, con- what is the good that conservation works to achieve. Mm. Um, in Australia specifically, conservation has taken a very 
very um, strong lean towards what is called nativism, the idea that there are those species that belong and those species that do not. And what defines whether they um, belong or not is whether they were moved into Australia by Europeans. There's this um, uh, very, um, uh, I think, insightful quote by um, the journalist Emma Maris, who talks about what she calls the white dude moment, which is when you know the first white man steps off the boat and puts his foot on the shores of Australia. That essentially defines um, uh, what is natural. Anything that comes before that white man is what should be here, and everything that comes after this white man should not be here, especially that is if if those species are here because they were moved by by this um, uh, by by this particular culture, um, uh, it, it then sets out to essentially cleanse the landscape to make it more natural, sort of to bring it back to whatever the system looked like just before um, just before the, that white white dude moment. Um, I think there are fundamental problems with. Um, for one, with defining reality by um, by the arrival of of a white guy, mm. um, and I think there are certainly ethical problems with um, compounding tragedies by essentially not only um, taking on board. So I think there's a really good process that Australia has gone through by recognizing what it meant for Europeans to come to 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 this country um, or to this landscape. And uh, and to uh, 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 treat the inhabitants here, humans and non-humans, as objects that could just be swept aside in in its grand project. But it's important to remember that not only did they treat the the inhabitants here with that kind of um, uh, disdain, they they also treated um, uh, the the um, those that were brought here forcefully, um, including humans. Um, and certainly plants, uh, essentially animals, that were taken to Australia and then used, often used and abused, and then just sort of released here for whatever whatever purpose. Um, so by essentially going out now and trying to um, cleanse the landscape of these animals that were brought here um, is, is essentially a way of compounding um, tragedy with, with tragedy. And I believe it is essentially the same mindset um, that that. that that colonialization um, started off with, mm. and yeah, it, it's it's an interesting, um, it's certainly an interesting sort of thing to think about in that way. Um, how we value the environment and how we value the individuals within the, the environment, and um, taking into account the cultural context of that. Um, and I, I, I want to ask, what is what is a way that we can we might start to shift the conversation and have or try to get people to see the value of foxes in our environment or rabbits or um, whatever number of um, individuals or species that are traditionally in Australia um, seen as, quote, pests or um, feral animals. How, how do we change that? Very, I, I feel like it's very deeply held. I, I speak to people who have nothing to do or have no background in ecology or conservation. And as soon as you mention one of these, um, a, a, an individual from these species or have these species membership, there's this, this visceral sort of anger towards these individuals. Um, how do we shift that deep, deeply held um, bias towards these individuals? I think we I think we start by having some 
open and honest conversations about this issue, at just like we're doing right now. Um, it's it's almost like a taboo subject, you know, saying something like "I love Australian cane toads" or "I love mm. Australian foxes." Um, is 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 almost like speaking um, a, a, some terrible taboo. Um, so so the, the the starting point is to actually open this up to some some um, uh, to, to some uh, conversation. I think then we need to start paying attention to our language. Mm. Um, what is it that we're doing when we're calling another living being a pest, or noxious, or a weed, or invasive? Um, what, how will, how is that influencing our thinking and what, what can, are we able and not able to think when we shift our language? Um, if for example, instead of calling them invasive, we could call them, um, uh, um, maybe sort of new, um, new wildlife or just Mm -hmm. wildlife or residents or immigrants Mm -hmm. or what, what, you know, what is it, what kind of language are, are we using? Um, I would then also say that Generally, the starting point, I think, in any kind of moral discussion is to start by assuming that, that, the, that the person, the being in front of you, um, deserves moral care and that the work shouldn't actually be on convincing and making the case that, that, that this fox in front of me or this wild camel in front of me um, deserves my care and respect. Rather, the onus should be flipped that that the argument needs to be shown why they should not be yeah i really like that that's a that's a it's a nuanced sort of um take on it but i think it's a very important one it, it by it's also, by saying it's also, it's also, a, it's also psychologically important yeah. there, there are psychological studies that show that when that when you have to put the burden on, of proof on who you include in, in your moral circle versus who you you have to exclude from your moral circle, um, you actually change um, the, the, those that you, that you care about and those that you don't. There's an actual psychological effect of doing that. Mm. And I think in these discussions, we're touching on some uh, big philosophical, ethical issues like is, you know, does humane slaughter exist? Is humane killing enough, you know, respect to give to animals? These kind of big issues. Um, but I know in your talk, you touched on the idea that within conservation, there's a sort of a lack of focus on this and a lack of training and that kind of thing. And then often there's a just focus on let's just get on and, and solve this issue rather than deal with this issue. Do you want to talk a bit about, um, yeah, I guess the lack of ethics in conservation? Yeah. Um, con- conservation biology um, generally is a field that is dominated by the sciences. So most people that, are, that identify as conservation biologists have gone through faculties of science. They've done a, you know, a, a, um, a bachelor's degree in science, maybe a master's and a PhD in science. Um, there is virtually um, n- no or very, very limited ethical training and faculties of science. Um, that is less of the case, or that, that is, there's more ethical training for the medical, for the uh, mm. medical professionals. Um, and, and, and there was a process that actually happened for um, th- that the medical profession actually started taking on what is called bioethics much more seriously. But unless you're, you're going into the medical profession, um, there's very little um, uh, training that that scientists are put 
put through to actually think, to be able to think critically through challenging ethical questions. Um, and so then what happens is that you have um, a field of experts in which, for example, they may be very well trained in, in, in ecology and, and in being able to understand um, how, how different species are influencing other species and, or how humans are influencing um, ecosystems. Um, but the, the fundamental values that are brought to these kinds of scientific questions, you know, why we ask one question versus another, um, are, are essentially remain hidden because we are not given the kind of training to, um, to ask ourselves, why are we asking this kind of question? Why do we think that this is appropriate and that is not appropriate? Um, and so there's, there's, there are quite a few academics, academics that are now arguing that conservation biologists need much more training um, in, in ethics. Mm, yeah, and it, it's sort of like I know from my own experience that um, doing a biology a biology and um, ecology degree with some conservation in there, that it's certainly the assumption is around animal welfare and that you practice the three R's or the four R's, which are reduce, reuse, um, and... I think I can't even remember the last yeah. one. So replace, replace. Obviously, wasn't drummed into me too well. Um, but there's, yeah, there's no, there was no point in my degree, um, at, at least, where those fundamental assumptions were ever challenged. Where we ever asked, is it even okay to think about animals or plants or environments in this way? Is it okay to think that we can go in and assert our own? Um, ideal on this system, and it, you're you're part of the um, the Centre for Compassionate Conservation at the University of Technology of Sydney. Are you are you is that centre doing any work in this space in in teaching the next generation of conservationists um, and putting this sort of ethical underpinning into uh, courses? We we're certainly starting to, um, and we're and we're advocating um, uh, to enable more of that. Um, and of course, each of us that is working in this field, we bring um, uh, we bring this way of of thinking and inquiry and critical thinking into the teaching that we do. Um, and I I also teach um, geology and paleontology, and I incorporate um, uh, critical thinking. Um, uh, e e even in, in, in something like like geology, that wouldn't necessarily be obvious, you know, what where where the connections are, but but they're there too. Um, but it's it's a it's it's small steps um, because um, there, because there are st there are still very clear divides between um, these are also broad issues around how universities are structured that they're set up in in um, very distinct. Um, faculties, and so for the most part, ethics and critical thinking will only be taught in departments of philosophy, um, whereas the the sciences are the you know are um, uh, um, are the domain of the faculties of science and, and and sociology are with the faculties of arts and social science and so on, um, and and so one of the uh, one of the challenges here to overcome is that we essentially have to become more cross disciplinary. We have to turn, if we're going to do anything in the world that has real-world implications, that is, if we're doing anything more than, I don't know, studying a, um, um, a black hole somewhere, um, uh, if we're making 
claims about how the world should be, if we want our research to influence the world, then we have to then become uh, more interdisciplinary thinkers. Mm. One, one critique I had from the workshop, or not I had, sorry, that, that I heard uh, expressed throughout the workshop on compassionate conservation was that it's doing nothing. So it's like the traditional or mainstream, whatever term you want to use, uh, conservations are, are sort of they're get, getting on doing the, the tricky work, making the hard decisions, and compassionate conservations are basically just stepping back, doing nothing because we don't want to harm animals, and therefore, as Adam touched on earlier, yeah, inevitably causing harm to animals or, or letting that harm be caused. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that was necessarily a strong argument, but either way, that, that did seem a common one anyway, that compassionate conservation is doing nothing would you like to respond to that critique yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one which i think also reflects um uh, uh an interesting maybe sort of cultural psychology around a fear of not doing things of not going out and fixing things um i think at first we i would actually start by saying that we we should be okay with not doing things as well. Um, that's actually a fundamental um, part of, of, of medical bioethics. It's first do no harm. Um, that is, before you go out and chop someone's leg off, right? See if you can just put a Band-Aid on. Mm. Um, so doing something is not necessarily better than not doing something. That, that I would just start with. Um, but then to make the claim that doing something necessarily means harming someone um, is also, I think, is also um, uh, a sort of strange argument um, to make. I think, I think what, 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 the, what the focus needs to be on is that if we want to change things and we want to fix things, um, we should actually genuinely take self-responsibility. It is way too easy um, for us to continue on our merry way, living the way we want to live, um, and then going on to some offshore island and eradicating the rats from that island and saying that we're saving the world. We're essentially shirking, um, externalizing. We're shirking our responsibility and externalizing the cost of doing the things that we feel are important onto someone else. Um, and so if we are saying we want to do something, let's start with saying what it is that I am willing to do to make the world a better place as I see it. And what, what do you see as, um, as examples of that? What, what is something that, um, that is possible for, and I suppose it's going to be situational, it's going to be contextual, but are there things that you think are um, easy gets, I suppose, for us to go, what are we doing and how can we change that? Well, I, I think um, uh, between the three of us and many people that are listening on the radio, um, one of the first things that would come to people's minds is that a basic thing that we can do um, is to is to um, is to have a plant based diet. Mm. Um, that, for example, is is such a simple thing, um, and yet so here we have a country like. Um, Australia, with one of the highest meat consumptions in the world, it's engaged in live export. Most of the landscape is used for um, for the production of uh, of meat and other and other animal products. Um, if if we won't even cut down um, those um, that those products from our diet, 
um, but we are willing to go out and shoot foxes or whatever it is. Mm. And that, that, that seems like, like a very basic thing to do. Mm. I would also add, though, that, that it's not to say that in some cases we can't also go out and, 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 and interfere or have some kind of intervention um, uh, in, in the lives of other species that provides them with protection. Um, we can do things sometimes like, um, like, like recovering habitat. We can plant trees. We can, um, we can, some people have even used guardian dogs to protect endangered bird colonies. Um, we can, we can look at situations where there are clear conflicts between where humans are persecuting wild animals. Um, and find ways to um, to find um, uh, ways to solve these kinds of problems um, that 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 avoid the people's um, desire to want to kill um, wildlife, which is not a minor thing. What one of the major drivers of extinctions is, is just humans going out killing wildlife, mm-hmm. and so if humans can um, reduce the um, the amount of wildlife that they are killing for whatever reason. Um, then that in itself is, is um, a conservation measure that, that pretty much I think any traditional conservationist would generally um, generally agree with. So there's many, many things um, that we can do. We can choose not to cut down the forest. We can choose to regenerate the forest and, and, and so on. And and that was one thing that stood out to me from the workshop. And I'm fairly new to this you know, this space and these discussions. But one thing that stood out to me is I felt there was long term agreement between you know compassionate conservations and traditional conservationists that we really have to get to the source of the issue, which is particularly you know, reducing habitat loss is definitely a big one. Um, but where the disagreement comes on is the short term solutions, particularly disagreeing around the killing of animals. But yeah, I, I wonder also within conservation. Um, because there isn't um, a an objection or inherent objection to killing animals, whether that um, to a degree sort of puts off these more long term discussions. I felt like a lot of the discussions are all on how do we deal with this conflict right here, which, which is important. How do we deal with this conflict right here? But also, I felt like I, yeah, again, I, I'm new to this space. I'm not sure if this is a fair critique, but I feel like there's maybe not enough discussion of okay, we got to talk about this issue, but let's also look to the long term and actually changing attitudes more fundamentally towards animals. Yeah, I, I think that's actually um, uh, quite insightful, and, and, um, and a conversation I had with a colleague recently was exactly on on this um, issue. Um, m- many of the conservation programs that involve um, severe harms to wild animals have no end in sight and have been going on uh, for decades. I have, for example, a field site um, in the Kimberley, where um, half a million wild donkeys already have been killed um, in order in order to purge the Kimberley from wild donkeys. Now, of course, wild donkeys are not going to disappear um, uh, from that part of the world. They just continually um, cross into and reestablish in the Kimberley. And so at no point um, does this solve the problem, or that is the perceived problem, unless you actually eradicate or drive the species extinct entirely. Um, and in very few cases, even if that was appropriate to do, which I argued, which I strongly argue it is not, in the most, most of the conservation programs essentially entail continuing to poison, shoot, blast um, uh, forever mm. and has already been going on for 30, 40, 50, if not 200 years. 
Yeah, it's a it's it's really stark. And at, at the workshop, um, one strategy that was discussed um, was education to shift to shift people's understandings of of environments and um, and that was certainly from the uh, traditional conservation side seen as not a not a conservation strategy, not something that is um, something that would benefit the environment. But I, I wonder, I wonder whether it, it would if 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 the alternative is this short term thinking that um, doesn't really get us beyond that. That we're always thinking about, okay, the next couple of years we're just going to drop ten eighty baiting, we're going to um, send shooters out. But it doesn't get beyond that. We never think long term, I suppose. Right, um, and 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 it's, and it's a difficult. It's it's an understandable. Um, it's understandable to think in these kinds of short term ways. Because, I mean, conservation is generally described as the crisis discipline. Mm. And so the way it tends to um, act is we are now in a state of crisis, and in a state of crisis, you, you just have to go out and do what you can as quickly as you can because, um, because there's a crisis out there. Um, I think what, what we're finding, e- even if we were to agree um, uh, on what the goals of conservation are, and, and that's part of the problem. We don't necessarily even agree on the gro- on the goals. Someone mm. like me says, "Well, I think cane toads should be protected in Australia." Not many of my colleagues agree with me. But let's say on those things that we do all agree on, um, uh, there there are um, uh, there are real problems that we're finding in trying to to go out and and find quick fixes to these things. Often what's actually happening is that when we go out to try and, and save an endangered species, which we all agree, agree would be a good thing to achieve, we can accidentally drive those species extinct, those very species, those very um, populations that we're trying to save, because ecology is so complicated. And so our actions are, can often backfire. We can, for example, um, go out and poison all of the foxes in order to protect their prey. But with less foxes, we get more cats and more rabbits. Or we may eradicate the cats and that get more rats. And we eradicate the rats and then we get more mice. And, um, and the effects keep, um, uh, keep um, creating new kinds of challenges and new kinds of problems that we didn't necessarily anticipate. And this is something that is recognized by the conservation and, and ecology community, but it doesn't necessarily translate into action, um, particularly into policy, where we, where we have these kind of simple fixes like, okay, let's go out and kill 2 million cats by 2020, where the goal becomes not how many species we're going to save or how many wild spaces are going to be protected mm. or so on. It's the body count becomes, yeah. becomes the goal. Yeah, well, th- th- thanks so much for joining us. Probably should start wrapping things up. Maybe I could hand over to you just to say anything you haven't got to that you'd like to leave listeners with. And also, do you have any um, web links or anything like that for um, the institute you're involved with? Um, sure. Um, uh, there are several um, uh, publications, for example, that could be shared maybe on your website if people want to read more about it. Yep. Um, our center has a website that can also perhaps be linked on your website if people want to learn more about compassionate conservation. That's, that's certainly an option. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can certainly do that. Um, and just one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be greedy and just mm-hmm. ask one more question, uh, bringing us back to this idea of um, thinking about our diets, for instance. I wonder why, so it's, it's a question I've been sort of 
thinking about recently is conservation seems to work in these small islands of of quote pristine habitat or habitat that we're trying to um, save from being degraded, and we forget about all of the rest of the um, of the land that is is controlled by agricultural in- interests and often um, animal agriculture. And what what do you think is the what is stopping conservation from really saying, okay, we've got 60%, whatever amount it is, of land in Australia dedicated to raising cows. Um, maybe that can be something we look at in terms of a conservation opportunity, getting rid of, getting rid of um, animal agriculture and building up habitat and um, environments, rewilding these spaces for um, a healthier environment. What, what, why do you think the conservation field is not questioning those sorts of issues or sort of has blinkers on when it comes to that sort of question? I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think there, I I think it's essentially been to a large extent put in the too hard basket. It's too hard because um, conservation doesn't stand a chance. And so it just says, well, you know, I've got, we've got some national parks, let's take care of those. Mm. Um, there, there's also the, the conceptual too hard basket because not all people necessarily agree um, uh, that um, uh, that the production um, of of, um, of animals for consumption um, uh, has to be inconsistent or has to be something that we completely give up on. There will be those that will agree with that and will say, okay, um, a world without animal production at all is a better world. There will be those that will say there's different ways. There are, for example, uh, predator-friendly farming, wildlife-friendly farming. There are more traditional ways of herding. Um, it's important to also consider that the relationship between human and domestic an- domestic animals um, is thousands of years old mm-hmm. and is an, also an integral part, I think, of human ecology. Um, so I think there's some fundamental ethical, conceptual, scientific questions around what these kind of human... Because humans are always more than humans, we always have other species with us, Mm -hmm. and how those ecological and ethical relationships then translate into the rest of the world um, are are difficult, difficult questions. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So thank you very much, um, Ariane, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thank you for having me, both of you. Yeah, thanks, Ariane. And we uh, we'll go to a song now. This is and we've got a um, a warning on this song uh, for explicit content. This is called "Countdown to Extinction" by Megadeth. Fight. 
Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads, and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR. And, yeah, we've been talking all about compassionate conservation. We were joined by Dr. Ariane Wallach discussing that topic. And you can go to freedomofspecies.org and find the show notes for this episode. And all the links that Ariane mentioned will be there and the articles and those kind of things so you can learn more about compassionate conservation. And in the last few minutes of the show, uh, me and Adam is going to give some final thoughts each on this topic of uh, compassionate conservation. And I just want to elaborate 
elaborate on the idea of compassionate conservation doing nothing or that critique. And so some of the many things which compassionate conservation actually or methods that supported were reducing habitat destruction, habitat regeneration, like regrowing habitat, education, protecting predators, feeding and water stations, uh, refuges for animals, um, exclosures where basically animals are kept out of certain areas where they might be caused harm. There was actually a, a lot of different methods which were actually okay under the compassionate conservation. So I thought that was a, a sort of a, a false critique of compassionate conservation. Um, and I also wanted to bring in the idea that when there was talking about um, killing animals, it was often done like this is the only practical thing or this is the only effective thing we can do. Um, compassionate conservation is not viable, etc. And I just wanted to briefly just draw on some anthropology, actually. This Paul Farmer who's a medical doctor and an anthropologist looking in a human context and he argued that in the context of treating AIDS, um, that uh, basically people in Africa often didn't have access to medication, um, but these therapies have actually, they're commonly used in more favoured populations in the United States and Europe, um, but these medications aren't made available to those uh, in these African countries, and rather than this not being economically viable or anything like that, it's more just a lack of political will for under, undervalued humans because of the region of the world they're from, because of their race, etc. And I think it's much the same um, when it comes to animals that like a lot of the or some of the solutions from compassionate conservation are not seen as viable or practical etc and i think this is within the framework of speciesism and it, it is it isn't practical it's not viable but i don't think we should accept that we should actually challenge that just as we should challenge the idea that uh, certain humans are valued less because of characteristics such as race or region in the world as well uh, adam no, i think that's a great sum up i okay. don't have anything else to add but i um we do have a couple of Announcements, news um, that's coming up. So in a couple of weeks, on the 16th of July in Melbourne, um, there's a talk going to be called, uh, that's called Animal Liberation and Capitalism uh, with a couple of great speakers who we've had on the show previously, Kristen Lee and Dylan Dylan Fernando and Mary Merkinich, who will all be speaking at the Resistance Centre and Bookshop Melbourne on 407 Swanson Street, Melbourne, and that's a free event. So if you're interested in um, thinking about animal liberation and capitalism, uh, head along to that. It's, so it's Tuesday, 16th of July from 6.30 to 8.30, and I've shared the information on that on both our Freedom of Species Facebook and Twitter pages, so you can find all the information there. And did you want to mention... Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll just briefly mention this story. So there's been um, New Zealand plant-based protein company Sunfed, which produces chicken-free chicken, has recently launched in coal supermarkets across Australia. Uh, and in response to this story, um, Senator Bridget McKenzie, who's the, deputy, dep- the Nationals Deputy Leader and Minister for Agriculture, um, tweeted, I'm not happy with the latest fake food push. Chicken-free chicken is not chicken, it's reconstituted peas. We need to protect our farmers. And I thought that was a really interesting tweet because who does she think is actually growing the peas? That is surely farmers as well. So this is this, um, yeah, plant-based chicken is produced from pea, uh, pea protein and New Zealand pumpkin, both of which are produced by farmers. And it's interesting this idea that farmers is, is so heavily tied to animal farming. And also she's the Minister for Agriculture. So this is agriculture that's going into this food, but agriculture is yeah, often associated with animal agriculture as well. So I just thought that was a yeah, really interesting thing of like, yeah, that plant-based food is somehow not supporting farmers. 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It, there's some strange things that go on in <laughs> politics when it comes to animals, isn't there? Yep. Uh, and we thanks thanks for listening again this week, folks. Um, we'll see you next week. Next week we've got a really interesting show where we've got some psychologists who are vegan researchers. They're doing research on um, all things vegan, and certainly tune in um, next week for that show. There'll be a couple of great um, speakers coming on to talk with us. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.